After people throughout the country got sick or died after using vaping products, Missouri's elected leaders have launched an education campaign about the increasingly popular product. Governor Mike Parson rolled out that plan in Jefferson City this week, adding that the state will inform the public, especially through social media. First thing is we need to get all the facts on the table, and I think that's what we're all trying to rush to do. But is Missouri really doing enough to get people to put down the vape pen? On this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and Jacqueline Driscoll join me to talk about what other states are doing to clamp down on vaping. We also talk with Summer Ballantyne of the Associated Press about how many jobs General Motors may retain if they expand their plant in Wentzville. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in St. Louis today is... Julie O'Donohue. And joining us from Jefferson City, our capital correspondent... Jacqueline Driscoll. And... You know, one of the great things about switching off on hosting this show is you get to decide, like, what topics you want to do. And today is like a dream come true for me. (laughs) Um, We are going to talk about the thing that I like talking about more than anything in the world, and that's vaping. (laughs) Jacqueline, you were at a press conference where Governor Parson and other officials rolled out this anti-vaping education initiative. What happened? Right. So I actually went to the first press conference where they announced that they were creating this campaign. And Governor Mike Parson gave the Departments of Health and Senior Services, the elementary and secondary education, and the public safety departments one month to get this program up and running. And he didn't um, give them any additional funding. So essentially, those departments kind of ate that cost, made it work. Um, But it they did. They got it up and running. They just announced earlier this week that the Clear the Air campaign is going to use various forms of social media to reach teens um, to talk about the dangers of vaping. And they also really want to dispel the myth that vaping is somehow healthier than cigarettes, which was kind of the notion of vaping when it kind of first hit the scene, or at least as it became more popular in the in recent years. It's a little interesting to me that this is their rapid response after, you know, Missouri's seen two deaths and dozens more sickened. I think now there's like 35 confirmed case of this vaping related illness throughout the state. Um, It didn't really have a whole lot of teeth to it, uh, but the governor did want to make sure that he was being careful. He said that he wanted to make sure that he got some of the unknowns answered first before they really did anything. And he wanted to leave it up to the legislature to talk about in um, the general session. I talked with the governor uh, last week, and I actually asked him about this topic and about this education campaign. This is how he described what his administration was rolling out. You know, the vaping deal is pretty frustrating because I'm not for sure how all that happened so quick to get through the process, and we didn't know really what the ramifications was on the health issues of it. 
Uh, so it makes you wonder how that took place on the federal level. But the bottom line, we know there's some serious problems with this, with vaping out there. Does the governor have an existing relationship with the tobacco industry that might factor As into this conversation? <laughs> yeah. As I've dug further into it, um, yes, in 2018, his, his the PAC um, benefiting his campaign for governor received about $50,000 from two tobacco companies. In 2016, he received thousands of dollars from the same two tobacco companies. But as I dug more into it, that's not really unique to Missouri politicians. It's not really based on, you know, party lines. A lot of the House leadership takes tobacco money. Um, a lot of senators, state senators, take tobacco money. And I think that that's interesting in just how Missouri handles, I mean, whether it's vaping or tobacco, they're, cert- they're certainly not putting money into, uh, you know, trying to deter people from smoking throughout the state. And they have some of the worst health-related issues in the nation. I, I believe you mentioned this in your article, but from what I could tell, there are nine states that have tried to enact some sort of ban. Mm-hmm. In fairness to Parson, eight of the states are run by Democrats, uh, so it's not Republicans enacting or trying to enact bans. Uh, the one exception is Utah, and I think Utah and smoking, because of the Mormon culture, probably is a little bit of an outlier. Um, but also, in fairness to him, like the bans have not been very successful. Essentially, right. vape shops or, or smoke shops have like sued right away to get these... Uh, bans kind of push back or not in, put in place. So um, I, I I was kind of, it, it's funny with this story, I feel like things are happening so fast that I actually thought a bunch of states had banned vaping products, but it seems like they haven't been able to. Yeah, they haven't. They, it's a weird interpretation. I was reading up on it as well. Um, it, it's like a weird interpretation of the powers of the governor in those specific states and whether they can institute bans or anything like that as if it's affecting, you know, a large population in terms of public health. It was it was interesting and kind of over my head, but I didn't have a ton of time to read into it. Um, so, yeah, in, in Parsons defense, I don't know that there is a whole lot more he can do um, how, you know, at least not by himself. Yeah, right. by himself, yeah. certainly. And and but the criticism that I do have is he's not really offering any guidance or suggestions to the lawmakers when um you, you know when they come back in January for the legislative session. He's not saying you know, he, we asked about raising the taxes. He he said he wasn't sure that pricing people out of the market was the answer. We, we asked about, um, you know, if he would support a ban on vaping products, and he, he didn't really support that. We asked about just the flavored, um, you know, just the flavored vaping stuff, and he wasn't very into that idea as well. So he's doing this education campaign, but there, there's also not really any guidance for lawmakers when they come back to Jefferson City. In fact, I asked him whether he would be in support of taxing and regulating vape products like cigarettes, and this was his response. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know what to say about that. I think the first thing you got to do, the priority should be, are these things healthy or are they not? You know, you know, the, the whole deal was sold on the idea that it was going to prevent you from smoking. 
you know, that's what everybody got bought into the issue about. I'm not for sure that's the end game right now. I'm not sure we're not uh, doing just the opposite and we're enticing people to smoke. And I think, uh, first of all, you got, you got to go to the health side of it and it's just really helping us, period. So, I mean, I'm of two minds here. Like, I don't know if you necessarily want to put something on the market that is super dangerous and killing people and then to reap a lot of tax revenue from a deadly product. But on the other hand, I also know vape products have become incredibly popular and Missouri is leaving tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars worth of tax revenue on the table. Jacqueline, what do you think of the governor's comments? Because I know I sent that to you a couple days ago, and I I think that you had uh, some interesting thoughts. I mean, first and foremost, we know that vaping is not healthy for anyone. I I would think any health professional can tell you it's better to not vape than to vape. Um, So I don't think they need to figure out anything there. But also, you know, the governor did speak a little about this at the press conference you know, several of the teens that begin using vaping products, I think it's around 30% of teens, will use cigarettes within just six months. So we know that there is a trend there. And we also have to take into account, yes, there's tax dollars to be gained, but also there are millions and millions in annual health care costs directly caused by smoking, just in Missouri alone. So we're balancing people's freedoms, but also the freedom of the money that I'm earning, that I'm going to eventually have to pay back to take care of this issue um, for people who are getting sick. Yeah, I want to just point out that the American Medical Association this week recommended that all vape products be banned except for ones that are approved for smoking cessation by the federal government, which is currently zero products approved for smoking cessation. So I think I don't think the jury's out on whether they're good or bad for us. Yeah, I guess I mean, <laughs> the bad. I guess the AMA has finally answered the eternal question, why not vape? <laughs> so we'll have to see if uh, they, uh, the federal government succeeds in banning vape products. <laughs> on that note and on that inside joke that only me and another person like, Jacqueline, thank you very much, as always, for joining us. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Let's move on now to Attorney General Eric Schmidt's announcement that he supports lifting a residency requirement for the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. This has been kind of an issue of contention for a number of months locally. And now that a statewide official, a statewide Republican official, has kind of weighed in, I think it's kind of amplified the issue a little bit more. Uh, what, Julie, if you could break this down a little bit. Well, I don't want to get into it's pretty complicated. Like there are some people who are police officers currently who don't have to live in the city. And it seems pretty compli- complicated about who does and who doesn't. But generally, uh, the attorney general and a couple different legislators kind of got together and said that they want to lift the ban so that anyone who's on the police force in St. Louis City could live outside the city. And some of the justification for that is the city is, um, according to Rachel Littman, our colleague, uh, about 100 officers down consistently. Uh, They're just having a really hard time hiring people. It's also important to say that the mayor and most of the people who 
uh, have to deal with law enforcement uh, administration in the city are also in favor of lifting this ban. And by the way, here is Attorney General Schmidt kind of articulating his reasoning behind wanting to lift this residency requirement. Where someone lays their head at night, or in the morning in the case of those who work the midnight shift, should not impact an individual's right to live where they want to live and serve a community that they want to serve. Now, I think that something has to be said about one of the reasons why a lot of police officers do not want to live yeah. in St. Louis City. There are basically two reasons. One of them may be because they already live in a place that is not St. Louis City and do not want to sell their house and move into the city. Another is schools. I mean, right. we got to be honest well, with ourselves. I think also crime. I think it's crime, but I think it's schools. Yeah. I mean, there was an article actually in the Post-Dispatch talking about a police officer who had a, a child with special needs who moved to St. Louis County because the special school district unquestionably, and I know this because I did the same thing, provides better services for special needs kids. Right. So I'm sympathetic to those type of situations because the city has clearly not provided enough investment into that to justify families living here. But I think that the counter argument that's going to be made is when you lift this residency requirement, you are going to have a lot of police officers who live in the city move to St. Louis County, and you could lose a lot of the tax base because of that. Or even farther, they could move to St. Charles or Jefferson. I mean, um, I, I grew up in a city where there wasn't a residency requirement for city employees, including police officers and teachers. Um, and people in those professions lived tended to be live pretty far removed from Washington DC. I'm kind of torn about this because I think and I hate to make this personal but where I grew up I think that the residency requirement um, kind of holds in some cities helps um, bolster the middle class numbers. I think that's true in Chicago and New York specifically you know you have a lot of Police officers, firefighters, other types of city workers, but those are certainly teachers, uh, certainly big groups uh, living in the city that you don't have a situation where you have people who are very wealthy, who can like afford private schools and, you know, to live in kind of a gated community situation or people who are very poor. And I'm not saying the bottom would completely drop out of the middle class in St. Louis. I don't really have that expertise, but it certainly would be a concern, at least of mine. Now, the other pushback to this idea is the is there's not a there's not universal agreement that the residency requirement is hindering recruitment. I'm going to read a, a tweet from the Ethical Society of Police, which is the union that represents African-American officers in St. Louis. The tweet says, we have no issue with anyone, including officers living where they want to reside. The issue with not keeping officers is more than residency. St. Louis City Police has a corruption problem that's hindering recruitment the most. And then there's a thread of 19 tweets showcasing sort of the different instances of officer misconduct that's happening that may be more of a, like a deterrent to people wanting to join that force. And I also don't know what the salary differences are or the benefits differences are between the city, the county, over in Illinois, St. Charles, Jefferson. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of it's always hard when you have a lot of competing municipalities and they're all competing for the same group of people. Right. So St. Louis County and the city of St. Louis are probably competing for the same officers. If a department has a reputation for not treating its employees well, that's probably a deterrent 
to uh, people seeking a job there. We'll be right back after this message with Associated Press reporter Summer Ballantyne. Until then, here's a message from our sponsor. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Associated Press reporter Summer Ballantyne. We're going to talk about her story that blasted throughout the wires, I guess on Sunday, about uh, incentives in a workforce development and economic development bill for General Motors and the promise of jobs that were promised. It's a bit redundant. Uh, <laughs> and and what may actually be realized. First of all, hello, Summer. Hi, thanks for having me. Give me just a, 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 a gist or a sense of what your story was about. Well, I wanted to follow up and see how the General Motors deal was going during the legislative session. Lawmakers um, were pressured to try and get some incentives on the table in order to entice General Motors to expand their Wentzville plant out in the St. Louis suburbs. And um, as part of the UAW negotiations, they reached an agreement to keep 2,000 jobs there which is significantly less than the number of people who are currently employed there. So I I just wanted to follow up with some lawmakers who had been concerned about the state dishing over what could amount to $50 million in uh, tax incentives for GM, knowing that they might not keep the current number of people employed there. And one of the things that you're alluding to, not only just about the General Motors incentive, but this entire workforce development legislation, is there was a fear that this amounted to a corporate giveaway for not a lot of payoff. In fact, this is Senator Andrew Koenig on Politically Speaking expressing that similar sentiment. There's a lot of corporate welfare in there, and literally million, not, almost nine, the fiscal note says $90 million. And I believe that's bad policy for government to pick winners and losers in the marketplace, and especially picking certain businesses. I think the best way to promote economic growth in the state is lowering the tax for every business. Um, instead of micromanaging the economy. So what reaction are you getting from lawmakers from the fact that there may not be as many jobs from these GM incentives as was promised? Well, it's important to realize that General Motors pushed back pretty hard when lawmakers were trying to get a a promise of retaining a certain number of jobs in this bill. So that was never actually included in the legislation. Um, But I talked to lawmakers recently, and the lawmakers who wanted GM to promise to keep jobs were pretty frustrated with the fact that now it seems like um, not every job is going to be kept. Basically, they say that it's incentivizing a company that could be laying people off. Yeah, I mean, it's not... For me, what was astounding in reading your article in Summer and some other things is it's, it's not... It's not just that not every job is going to be kept. 2,000, if they only kept 2,000 workers, it would be less than half of the jobs that are at the Wentzville plant now, right? Am I right about that? Yep, you're right. And it is um, important to note that this is still something that's in negotiations, and it's the Department of Economic Development that is working on trying to finalize a deal with GM to require them to keep X number of jobs in order to get this $50 million in incentives. I did hear back from the Department of Economic Development after that story ran, and uh, they basically said that um, they're still trying to push for retaining the maximum number of jobs possible. So it's possible that uh, they'll come out of this with 
a higher retention rate than just 2,000 jobs, but um, that's not guaranteed because it wasn't in the legislation. Right. I mean, I think the other thing that struck me about this is the way it was framed was the state's putting up uh, $50 million worth of incentives to get a $1.5 billion investment in the Wentzville plant. And some of me thinks if the union agreed to retain just 2,000 jobs there, the way I put all that information together, and maybe I'm not being fair, is that this $1.5 billion investment in the Wentzville plant may actually be automating some people's jobs. While GM hasn't even confirmed officially that they are going to expand the Wentzville plant, so I wasn't able to get much information from them about this, but I have spoken to lawmakers from the St. Louis area who are concerned that this um, investment might lead to uh, jobs being automated, but that's you know just speculation. I know that this legislation was was widely seen as one of the biggest accomplishments for Parson during the 2019 legislative session. And I think it passed with bipartisan support. From talking with legislators, did you get any sense from people that supported this measure that they may be wavering in in that backing after getting this news from GM about job retention? I only spoke with Representative Nick Schroer from uh, the St. Louis suburbs, uh, Republican, and he seemed pretty optimistic that the Department of Economic Development would still be able to negotiate with GM and make them keep a higher number of jobs there in order to get this money. But that's not to say, you know, I only spoke with Nick Schroer, um, so I, I can't speak to whether or not there are any concerns or doubts in other lawmakers' minds about this now. I think we need to put this in a little bit of a wider context. I think there's a philosophical question, and I wasn't around when they were debating uh, this measure, but about whether states, not just Missouri, because this certainly happens elsewhere, should be offering incentives to companies that are then going to cut jobs, whether states should offer incentives to companies just to keep jobs and not to like expand their workforce. And um, and I, I think Honestly, with car companies, it's it's going to be this is not like the the last of this. I mean, I think GM is probably going to be closing more facilities. They closed three or four plants uh, in other states um, recently, including I was reading before I came on the podcast two in Michigan, even though Michigan literally offers them hundreds of millions of dollars in incentives. So. I'm somewhat sympathetic to someone who wants to keep the plant in Missouri. You probably do have to offer them money. I, I guess I can't say that for sure. But the argument in favor of keeping all those jobs is um, why would we be dishing out all these tax incentives without at least a promise that the current workforce is retained? In the past, um, I've heard arguments that we, the state of Missouri has given out tax incentives if companies promise to create more jobs. So there were um, a lot of uh, discussion in especially the state house about this. And that was coming from both Republicans and Democrats who wanted to see higher or uh, any threshold for job retention in the bill. One of the key questions moving forward about this is not only whether these incentives will retain as many jobs as promised, but whether this expansion is even going to happen in the first place. I actually asked Governor Parson about that very 
topic during my wide-ranging interview with him on November 14th. This is what he had to say. I'd like to provide you with a lot more details than I can, but I've got to wait here for a few more weeks before I can say that, but I think there'll be exciting news on the way. Uh, I think there's going to be uh, an opportunity there. I think we worked hard last year, not only for that General Motors plant, but when we talk about that General Motors plant, you also have to put in there the other 1,200 suppliers across the state of Missouri that supplies parts there, product to that, and how big that is for our state. So I'm excited. I still, uh, I'm very confident we're going to finish up uh, making a deal on that and hopefully have that implemented here in the near future. Now, that was about six days ago as of this recording. I don't know if you've heard anything differently than what that clip portrayed, Summer, but did you get any sense from talking with the Department of Economic Development if there's going to be any announcement on when this expansion is going to happen anytime soon? Yeah, I also have gotten the sense in talking to stakeholders that there's going to be an announcement soon. And everyone from the Missouri government side seems pretty optimistic that this will happen. But the official response that I got from the Department of Economic Development was we're still negotiating, so we can't discuss any of the specifics of it. But again, wouldn't some of the announcement be that they're going to invest, like sort of update the plant? And might that mean that some people might lose their jobs when the plant gets updated? I mean, you know, I guess I'm I'm trying to figure out why, whether updating the plant, I'm sort of sympathetic to the idea that if you update the plant, if GM invests in the plant, then the plant will not be closed in the near future, probably, because they won't spend money if they're intending to close it. But it could mean that fewer people have jobs because they could, you know, automate some things that people do. I I guess I don't understand why that would necessarily be a win for Missouri, who's not necessarily winning if GM becomes more efficient. But maybe I'm not following things correctly. I think that's, uh, you bring up an interesting point, and I've definitely heard lawmakers say just that, that Um, we could be incentivizing General Motors to invest and that just lead to layoffs. Um, I did speak when I was talking with Nick Schroer about this, and this is his district, his area. He said there was a lot of optimism among business owners in uh, that area that they could see business um, grow for them just because of the investment in GM. So um, there is some uh, hope that this could general spur the economy in that St. Louis suburb. Well, Summer, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your story. And be sure to read all of Summer's coverage in, I, what, every newspaper in the state or in most <laughs> newspapers around the country, I guess? I hope. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, we'll be back right after this quick break. And we're back with our final segment that we lovingly like to call Show Me Something. There was a big election in Louisiana this past Saturday, um, and incumbent Governor John Bell Edwards won a close race over Republican Eddie Rispone, showcasing that his 2015 victory was definitely not a fluke and providing a lot of hope for red state Democrats that they can win in difficult states like Louisiana. And I think that there are some people in Missouri who have gone through three really bad election cycles in the row that are looking at this and saying, we can do the same thing here with Nicole Galloway against Mike Parson. And since, Julie, you used to work in Louisiana and you now have kind of gotten the lay of land in Missouri, I I want you to kind of uh, reflect on that sentiment 
because I think if there's anybody in Missouri who probably is more knowledgeable <laughs> about this topic, it's probably you. <laughs> well, I don't know if I've gotten the lay of the land here yet. But um, yes, I mean, I think it's it's not just the governor's race in Louisiana. I think the results in Kentucky where a Democrat beat a Republican and also, frankly, not as well reported. But the Democrat in Mississippi did a little bit better than he was expected to do. The Republicans still won in that state, obviously. If I am uh, Nicole Galloway or working on her campaign, I'm probably feeling encouraged uh, because this is certainly better than the alternative. And there's been a lot of um, uh, speculation that maybe Trump uh, Trump's rallying is not quite exciting his base the way uh, you would think in these elections, especially after Kentucky and Louisiana, he made a big push, uh, appeared there multiple times uh, ahead of the election, and yet his candidate still lost. I guess I would caution, I think that the circumstances in Louisiana and Kentucky were very different than the circumstances of the coming governor's race in Missouri. In Louisiana, you had an incumbent who was reasonably popular, and basically the thing that was most of concern to his people was that he is a Democrat. Otherwise, people kind of liked him. So he was never n- not liked. And I, d- I don't think that the Republicans ran a particularly good campaign. They kind of tried to paint him as a socialist. I think a lot of people in the state felt like the governor was not a socialist, even if they don't really like Democrats uh, that much. In fact, he's considered by national standards a fairly conservative Democrat. Correct. Yes. I think just trying to paint him as as similar to AOC was, was, which I think literally happened in ads, was not a great move. They also went after the fact that he's a trial lawyer, and I just don't know that that resonated. And in Kentucky, uh, which I know less about, but the governor there was very unpopular, had said some things that were pretty offensive, including sort of implying that teachers who were on strike were uh, putting children at risk of being molested by adults. Yeah, he has been described as Eric Greitens with no message discipline, <laughs> yeah, which is I mean, not like... which is not a compliment. <laughs> For what I mean, I know a lot of people hate the former governor, <laughs> but he had incredible message discipline, and Matt Bevin had none. Yeah, I mean, he did. He had um, called the Medicaid rolls, which basically meant he was responsible for some people losing their health care. So I think that's a different situation than Missouri, too. Governor Mike Parson is not deeply unpopular. Um, He, you know, as far as I know, someone's uh, welcome to tell me differently. And so I think the situation with uh, Auditor Galloway and Governor Parson is a little bit different than what we saw in Kentucky and Louisiana. That being said, I think most people think that Missouri is uh, to the left, although not on the left, but to the left of at least Louisiana, I can confidently say. Um and possibly Kentucky. So I don't know. We'll see. I I think that there's a couple of other key differences we have to point out. Louisiana has like over 30% of its population is African-American. Correct. And they turned out in black Democrats turned out in huge numbers. And Missouri's population, while not unsubstantial, is about 11 or 12%. So you cannot win a statewide race just on the strength of the black vote. You need a, if you're a Democrat, you need Big turnout in St. Louis, St. Louis County, and Kansas City. You need to win more conservative suburbs, 
St. Charles County, you need to at least hold down margins. Jefferson County, you have to win. Buchanan County, you have to win. Green County, you have to hold down margins. And you have to do better than getting 20% in rural counties. Thank you, Julie, and thank you to Jacqueline and Summer Ballantyne for joining us. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Shula Newman is our executive editor. Fred Ehrlich is our politics editor. And John Larson is our sound engineer. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Julie? At J.S. O'Donohue. We will actually not be back next week. We're going to be taking a break from this roundup show so we can all celebrate Thanksgiving. But we will be back the week after that. See you next time. Put me on through, gotta send my love down to Baton Rouge Hurry up, won't you put her on the line Gotta talk to the girl just one more time